for redeeming us. When we were running out of the grave, coming into your arms like the prodigal son. We were dead with the world, but because of you, we've been made alive. There is none righteous but you. But now, because of your blood, because of your sacrifice and resurrection, we are made righteous through faith because we believe in you. We didn't earn it. And because of that, your forgiveness is greater than anything else. You have the power over death to give life. Praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Children's Church. Is there a Children's Church? All right. Children's Church, you are dismissed. All right. All right. That was some good singing. And uh, we're going to get right into this morning's message, which is a second part to last week's message, talking about the great prayer. Um, This is the last prayer of Jesus, right as he was going to be arrested. And so we learn a lot about what was on his mind, what was in a priority in sense. And last week we looked at part of that. This this week we're going to look at the second part, which is his concern for church unity. And uh, we're going to see that we're unified for the sake of the gospel. Um, When... Some of you come from small towns, uh, some of you come from big towns, but you've probably all seen a movie or a play or a book or, that you've read, and it's, there's a small town kid and they dream of going to the big city, right? And one of the reasons sometimes that they desire that is they've grown up in a small town or even a farm or something, and they think everybody thinks the same, they look the same, they have the same prejudices, they have the same stereotypes, the city holds attraction to them because they say, oh, that's the melting pot, right? All these people, all these different nationalities, all these different religions, all these different ethnicities living in wonderful unity. That's often how the young person in a, in a small town imagines the big city. And so they're drawn to that. They might feel that their family or their small town is intolerant, and so they want to go somewhere where they can learn more about the variety and the types of people and and learn things like that. So they go to the big city. And everybody gets along there, right? That's what they thought. They get there, they find out that sometimes there's a unity that's an artificial unity. Um, Or they'll find out that people in big cities, they might cast aside differences of skin color and ethnicity, but they don't tolerate difference in ideas or people who think differently, right? And I think that people, on some level, desire to have unity with other people. And they really want to come together, but for various reasons of pride or fear or whatever it might be, they never can completely do that. In fact, it's impossible to come together in true unity unless God is among those who seek the unity. One writer said, the world's attempts to come together without God are always at the expense of human life. And it's true. Attempted unity without God leads just to what we see in nearly every large city today. Intolerance of ideas that are opposed to the group, think. Attempts to justify bad behavior sometimes using the excuse of tolerance. So we're going to tolerate these people, right? 
Or there's support for abortion and the innocent unborn. Um, uh, they, they support that, but at the same time, they oppose death penalty for guilty people. Or they're opposed to, uh, they're, they're supporting helping animals and protecting animals, but they don't protect babies in the womb. Stuff like that. So you live in a big city, sometimes if you don't think like the group, you have to learn to keep your mouth shut, right? Because the ones who say they're tolerant actually have very little tolerance for those who disagree. If you disagree, for example, about changing the definition of marriage, you're a homophobe. If you think Christian values are superior to another religion's values, well, you're a bigot. If you believe that people should be hired and promoted based on their talents and abilities and experience rather than their race or their sex, someone might say, well, you're just unfair. Everybody should get the same, and so on. Throughout human history, people have been drawn to big cities where they imagine that there, since there's all these different people living together, things must be really good there. Because how else could they live together there if there wasn't mutual respect and dignity? Everything must be really great there. And throughout history, those idealistic people who have gotten to the big city have found themselves disappointed. Or they're sucked into forced conformity rather than the broad acceptance they thought they were going to find there. You see, the world's attempts to come together without God are always at the expense of human life. In his last recorded prayer before being arrested, Jesus was especially concerned with unity. He prayed for us, the church, that we would have unity. You see, the unity that people seek in the city the ideal they long for that can only be achieved in the church. Outside of a single highest ideal that unites, people will never be truly unified. Lower ideals may unite you for a while. You may unite with people that are fans of your favorite team for a time until you find out your politics are different. Or you may unite with people with, different, with politics you agree with until you find out they cheer for the wrong sports team, right? But the one thing that can unite people of all different demographics, it's mutual faith in Jesus Christ, which puts us in a family together. And Jesus prayed for that unity. And he specifically stated that that unity, the unity of the church, would provide evidence to the world of the truth of the gospel. John 17, starting at verse 20 to the end of the chapter. Jesus is praying. He's prayed for the apostles, and now he continues. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's all of us who are believers in Jesus Christ. That they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. 
I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known with that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So if we go back to that first verse in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, he's talking about the apostles, but also for those who believe in me through their word. So after praying for the apostles, now he's praying, and remember he prayed for them to have spiritual protection and strength, and he prayed for their witness. Now his prayer moves to those who would believe because of the witness of the apostles. And that means Jesus is now praying for all believers. And this is a prayer that's sent forward through history from Jesus. And a prayer that includes believers today. Verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they, may, they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So Jesus is concerned for unity among the believers. That they may all be one. Jesus was not saying that believers all have to have the same hobbies or the same ideas or the same anything. He's not praying for uniformity, but for unity. The beauty of the unity that can be found in the church is that it is a unity that cuts across many other things that may divide people normally. We've had the privilege of seeing this if you've ever been, if you ever had a chance to go to General Council of our, which is our. Our alliance has every two years a big gathering called General Council. And you find Christians there from every part of the country, every part of the world. You'll find people there from cities and people from farms. You'll find people who speak many different languages. You'll find people who homeschool and people who go to the public school. You'll find people that are wealthy and you'll find people that come out of poverty. People who grew up in a Christian home from birth and people who are saved from adulthood. There are lots of different people there, but there's one thing that unites us, and it's not the Christian and Missionary Alliance, although that's part of it. It's our mutual faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only way you would ever find that kind of unity among such a diverse group of people. Jesus prays that we would all be one, just as the Father and Jesus are one. This is perfection. He's, he's praying for us to have perfection in our unity because is there anything short of perfection in the Trinity? There's not. So if Jesus is saying that he wants us one just as the Father and him are one, he's praying for perfect unity, not just get-along unity. 1 John 1, 1 through 3 tells us a bit of what unites us, that which was from beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify it to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, the apostle is saying to other believers, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. John says, we have seen it. They've seen Jesus. John is writing about him and the other apostles and the early disciples. They looked at him. They touched him. Now they testify to it. And why do they testify to it? That you may have, you too may have fellowship with us. 
And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. John says, they, the apostles, proclaim it to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. In a sense, John's saying, if, unless you know Christ as we do, you really don't have fellowship with us. But when you have believed in him for yourself, you will have true fellowship. In the church, we should find the truest form of fellowship. We are united in Christ, even if we are not united in every way of thinking. 1 John 5.20, we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. Our unity with each other in the body of Christ can only come if we are each individually united with Christ. For all the striving seminars, books, classes, whatever else, all of those things that are done to try to get the church folks to get along, the number way, one way we can learn to get along individually is if first we put our relationship with Jesus Christ as the priority in our lives. If we focus on him and become like him and unite ourselves to him in obedience to his word, if we take this personally and work out our own faith with fear and trembling, then we will be less focused on trying to figure out what's wrong with everyone else and work on perfecting ourselves in Christ and work on responding to others as he would, speaking as he would, answering as he would, loving as he would, forgiving as he would. If we want unity in the church, it does not start with individuals in the church trying to get along. It starts with individuals aligning themselves with Christ. So that if we are aligned with him, then he, as he is in the Father and the Father is in him, we also would be in him. And if we are united with him, we will share his love and concern for all believers. So Jesus wants this perfect unity to be among us for us to pursue that kind of unity. And he gives this reason. So that the world may believe that you sent me. So that the world may believe that you sent me. Thomas Manton said that divisions in the church breed atheism in the world. And here Jesus says the corollary that unity in the church will be helpful to those outside the church when it comes to believing who Jesus is. The unity in the church should be so clear, so evident, that the world takes notice and will consider that they can put some stock in the gospel because here they see the unity the world can't achieve. No big city has perfect unity or anything even close to it. Human ideals that lead people to believe in the city because it promises fairness to everyone should pale in comparison to the unity that we should naturally find in the church. In the church, unity means love, true love and concern for others. Not pride, not seeking authority or power over others. Not lording over one another, but becoming a servant to one another. And that's not easy, but that's what Christ modeled. He said to be great in his kingdom was to become like a child. In the church, we should have such unity that no one would ever fear walking in and being judged. And sadly, that's not always the case. How many people avoid church because they missed last Sunday, and if they come this Sunday, they're going to 
expect they're going to get harassed over missing last Sunday. And it's not in a loving, concerned way, but in an accusing way. How many people avoid church because they have committed a sin? But instead of feeling the church is the safest place to come, where love abounds and covers a multitude of sins, they stay away because they expect to be shamed. How many people avoid the church because they don't understand all the teachings and are afraid to be criticized for their lack of understanding when instead they ought to feel encouraged to keep learning and moving forward? If the people in Christ's church are his sheep, then why do some of those sheep fear coming to the place where they should feel safest in this world? Why do they fear that they may be in danger in the church? They should expect it outside the church, not inside it. The Puritan Thomas Brooks said, For wolves to worry the lambs is no wonder, but for one lamb to worry another, that is unnatural and monstrous. Many parents have noticed their child faking an illness to avoid school, where they're so anxious about how someone is going to mistreat them that they do not even want to get out of bed. Some people as adults experience the same anxiety going to work. And it's no wonder that this should be the case in the world, but God forbid that be the case in the church. Pastor Gary Weilman, who was my pastor when I was in Bible college, and I mentioned a few months ago, passed away. He often said some of the most painful bites are not those from the unsaved. The most painful bites are sheep bites. And he cautioned again and again, don't let the sheep bites get infected. If you have ever felt uneasy about coming to church because you've experienced the pain of having someone who is supposed to be a fellow sheep bite and snarl at you or exclude you, then I sincerely apologize to you. Whether it was here or at any church, it should not have happened. And I suspect it may have happened to some of you because it's happened to me. I also have experienced that sick feeling of wondering when the next sarcastic or judgmental words are going to come. I know how it can paralyze and cause anxiety. I can't take responsibility for every individual, but I can apologize on behalf of the body of Christ because our Lord would not have condoned that. And if you are one of the ones who tends to point out to others how they missed the last service or or you've tried to usurp the job of God's word and his Holy Spirit that convicts people of sin and you've taken it upon yourself to try to be Jiminy Cricket, the conscience of the congregation, then for the Lord's sake, consider what he prayed. That our unity would be like the unity between God the Father and God the Son. Loving, united, bound together by our common faith. And rather than being someone who others fear, be that one who perfect love, whose perfect love casts out fear. And if we can be united like that, Jesus says the world may believe that Jesus was sent by the Father. Moving to verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. Jesus gives glory to us. That glory is found in our unity. A church without unity will not have much glory. And a church whose unity is not based upon Christ will not have much glory. But a church that unifies in Christ will have his glory. Verse 23, I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Are you seeing how important this is to Jesus? Unity again, he's now mentioned three times in the few verses. 
the unity of the church. Unified with him, unified with each other because we're in him. And unified perfectly, and once again, he links this to the true witness of the church. Our unity is a verification of the gospel's truth. And this is why when a church split happens, or people hear about fighting in the church, or they hear Christians gossiping about each other, they will not be as likely to believe the truth in Jesus. One reason scripture warns about gossip again and again is it involves untruths. And James writes 4.11, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are, a doer of the, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And then in 3.13, James says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Gossip has no place in the church because it disrupts unity. And judging other believers and speaking evil against other believers, James says, is speaking evil of the law and judging the law. So the church should be a place where people feel free that they aren't going to be constantly judged. Now, if a public and egregious sin is observed among the church, we have scriptural ways to deal with that sin in a loving way in order to bring a brother or sister back to where they need to be. However, this does not include harsh language or sarcasm or shaming people. You hear a lot of times this phrase thrown out, tough love. Oh, I could be tough love so I can be a jerk to you, you know, because that's tough love. I never see that anywhere in Jesus' teachings. Never. You ever see Jesus being a jerk to someone? Never. No such thing. Instead, we need to show love and mercy. Let God's word and God's Holy Spirit do the difficult work of bringing someone to repentance. We have an opportunity to be part of his redeeming work. Our job is not to convict people of sin and convince them of truth. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. Our job is to show the love of Christ and teach his word. And as we teach his word, we can trust that his Holy Spirit, who superintended the transmission of the word of God, if you attended my Bible class, um, the Holy Spirit, we can trust, will do the work of convicting people of their sin and convincing them of the truth of the gospel. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus prays that we'll be with him and see his glory. And Jesus looks forward to this day when we'll finally be perfected and united with him. And then verse 25 and 26, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, and the love with which you have loved me, that the love that you have loved me, which, sorry, let me start that again, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. In seven verses, Jesus has specifically mentioned unity four or five times, depending on how you count them. He wants the church unified in him, just as he's united with the Father. And our witness to the world, while it is primarily witnessing to the gospel, is helped greatly when we live out that gospel in our local church body. As we go into our 40 days of prayer, it's important that we consider what was important to Jesus when it came to prayer. Consider other biblical figures as well. What did they pray about? But today we have seen something that should greatly challenge us when it comes to our prayers. It should challenge us because Jesus prayed for unity in the church, so we ought to change, pray for unity in the church as well. 
but it should also encourage us. You see, we know something for certain, that Jesus was sure that his prayer would be answered. We see his confidence that his prayers are answered when he stands outside the tomb of his friend Lazarus in John 11. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus is thankful the Father hears him and he knows that the Father always hears him. If Jesus knows his prayers are going to be heard always, then if we pray for what Jesus prayed for, then we too can be sure that our prayers will be heard because whenever we align ourselves with the will of Jesus Christ, he will answer our prayers. Since Jesus prayed that the church would have unity, we know that this prayer will be answered. You may say it doesn't look that way, but it will. When he's completed his kingdom work, all of his will, all of his people will have perfect unity. In the meantime, we have to do more than just pray. We have to take action. Last week I mentioned Jesus not only prayed this prayer, the next thing he did was get arrested and go to the cross to see that it was complete. He didn't just pray that the Father's will be done. He took action. We have to take action as well. What is interfering with the unity in your relationships with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Has someone offended you or hurt you? I dare you to pray a blessing on them. I dare you. See what happens. Even if they never change, your heart and your attitude towards them will change. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus commanded this of his father's followers. Uh, Matthew 5, 43. You have heard that it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he who makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you, only greet, greet, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, if we're to pray for those who persecuted it, I ask you, has someone in the church persecuted or mistreated you? Pray for them. I dare you. 1 Peter 3, 8, and 9. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. You see, I'm joking only a little bit when I say I dare you to do this. Pray for the ones who persecute you. Bless those who do evil to you. Is it okay for me to dare you to do it? Well, it's a command of Scripture that we do these things. So really, I shouldn't need to dare you to do it. You should be wanting to live in obedience to Christ. And so anything I challenge you with is only that you show your love for Jesus by keeping his commands, since that's the standard the Lord gave us, that if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So pray for others. Pray for those who have hurt your feelings or otherwise offended you. Pray for them. Now I'm going to slip a comment in here. If you're dealing with real abuse, whether physical abuse or emotional abuse, you still should pray for your abuser. 
Do not confuse what I am saying here. I am not saying you must continue to put yourself in the way of an abusive person. Jesus himself walked away from abusive people many times. Paul snuck out of town to avoid his abusers, even being lowered out of the window in a basket one time. Pray for your abusers, but also get out of their path if you need to. If you have tried reconciliation with someone who is clearly bent on remaining in the sin that they're in, you need to protect yourself from the abuse. But still pray for the abuser. The Lord will set you free when you pray for people that have hurt you. Jesus prayed for unity in the church, so we ought to as well. Pray for those who have let you down. Pray for those who have hurt you. Pray for those that you have a hard time looking at. Pray for the ones you avoid eye contact with because something's going on between you. Pray, pray, pray. Pray, but also do the work required of you. After you've prayed, you will find it easier to forgive. After you pray, you may decide that whatever you were angry about was kind of silly anyway. After you pray, you may find it easier to approach your brother or sister in Christ so that your relationship can be reconciled. Because we're given a ministry of reconciliation as believers. Paul writes about that in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, and I'm about to close. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespassers against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So pray for others, seek reconciliation, pray for unity in the church, and come to the prayer meeting tonight, but pray for these things. Pray for the unity of the church. That was the desire of Christ, and it must be ours as well. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for the conviction of your Holy Spirit through your word. Lord, there's not one of us who's squeaky clean when it comes to relationships in the church. Open our eyes, Lord, to our own faults. Cause us to grieve over our sin, especially where it interferes with the unity of the church. Lord, make it painful to us until, we convic- until we're convicted to the point of repentance so that we can walk out of that stronger in you, 